The following Bible lesson and other Bible information can be found on the official Dean Bible Ministries website. That's found at www.deanbible.org. That's www.deanbible.org. Dr. Dean is the pastor of West Houston Bible Church. And now, here's Dr. Dean with the Bible lesson. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him and He will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee. Yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusted in thee. For the word of God is alive and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder the soul and the spirit and the joints from the marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Before we begin our study of God's word this morning, let's make sure we're ready in fellowship. So we'll have a few moments of silent prayer for the opportunity to use 1 John 1, 9 if necessary, and then we'll open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we welcome the time that we can gather together as a body of believers this morning to study Your Word, that we may be refreshed by the truth of Your Word and by doctrine, that we may be encouraged and that we may see Your overall plan and purpose in the creation of man, the creation of the human race, and the outworking of Your purposes in human history. Now, Father, we pray that You would help us to understand the things that we are studying, to see how they relate together and that God the Holy Spirit would help us to see how they apply to our thinking, to our approach to life, that we may think in a manner that glorifies you and live in a manner that is a reflection of your character and is a testimony to both the angels and to those around us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We continue our study this morning looking at the Old Testament. When... Paul wrote to Timothy and said, All Scripture is God-breathed. In the previous verse, in 2 Timothy 3.15, he had referred to the fact that, that Timothy had been brought up according to the principles in the Holy Writings. And that is a definite reference to the Old Testament since there was no New Testament canon at that time in history. So that tells us that even for church-age believers, there is a tremendous resource in the Old Testament. The sad thing is that, unfortunately... Many today do not know the Old Testament very well, and there's a tremendous amount of detail and history there, and that unfortunately seems to uh, turn some people off because they have their exposure to history is the history that you have in elementary school and junior high, high school and the public schools, where you're taught history from a secular framework, and when you dom- have a have a world view as we do today, which is dominated by by secularism and uh, the absence of God, then history is nothing more than a random collection of, of, uh, of events and data, and so it has no meaning, and nobody can come into the classroom and teach history 
from a divine perspective, and yet God is the God of history. And history really begins not with the secular Greek historiographers, such as Herodotus and Thucydides, but with Moses. Because true history assigns meaning and interprets the events of history. So we have seen this in the Old Testament. We'll continue to look at this, and that's why we're spending so much time in the early part of Genesis, is to just give that overview and interpretive framework to understand why these things are the way they are. By way of review, we have seen that the Old Testament is organized in your English Bible according to subject matter. In the Hebrew Bible, it's organized according to authors. So there's three divisions in the Hebrew Old Testament. The Torah, which refers to the instruction, which is the first five books of the Pentateuch written by Moses. The Nevi'im, the prophets, both the uh, early prophets and the latter prophets. And the Ketuvim, which are the writings, Psalms, Proverbs, the wisdom literature, writ- Daniel, written by authors who were not who did not hold the office of prophet. In the English Bible, it's organized according to subject matter. So the first five books are called the Law or the Pentateuch, uh, the Torah, written by Moses. And then following that, you have, uh, those were written about 1440 B.C. And then from the time of the conquest, you have the episode with Joshua, the commanding general who took the Israelite armies into the land And the reason I have that dark line down there in the middle is to indicate the divided kingdom. You have a united kingdom up until about the early 900s B.C. and then there's division into north and south, the northern kingdom of Israel, the southern kingdom of Judah. Then in 586 B.C., the southern kingdom goes out into exile. The northern kingdom had already gone out, been conquered, militarily by the Assyrians in 722 B.C. And in 586, the southern kingdom goes out for a 70-year exile. Then they return, and your three books, Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther, cover the post-exilic period. In terms of the writings and how they fit into this overall scheme. Now, this gives you this overview. This, this is your framework. If you can understand this, you can understand the Old Testament. You have to have those broad categories. Law, history, divided kingdom, exile, post-exile. That's the Old Testament. Everything else fits into that framework. So you have Job, which was written, or at least occurred, I think, prior to Abraham. We don't know when it was written. It's the earliest, probably the earliest of the books written in the Old Testament. And then you have the writings. Most of the Psalms were written by David. Some were written by Moses and some others. But we'll just put them in there. They're written between roughly 1,000 B.C. and 600 or 500 B.C. Then you have the Solomonic wisdom literature, Song of Solomon, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, written during the lifetime of Solomon and roughly the uh, 10th century B.C. Major prophets, Isaiah in the uh, 7th century B.C., Jeremiah up to and including the exile, Ezekiel up to and including the exile, Daniel during the exile. Then you have your pre-exilic minor prophets, the 12 minor prophets, and then your three um, post-exilic prophets, um, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi. That, if you have that, you can get a good overview of what's going on in the Old Testament. Now, the Pentateuch itself is organized in a very special way, unique to its time in history. It was written by Moses, on the plains of Moab 
in roughly 1400 B.C., just prior to the entry into the land. Now, in liberal scholarship, they always attack Mosaic authorship, first of all. See, the assumption of liberal theology is that God has not spoken in history, that all of Revelation, all the Bible, is merely God's record of His interactions with God. Put God in quotes. And according to that, they reject any kind of supernatural breaking into human history by God. So naturally, the Pentateuch is always under attack by liberal scholarship because it violates their basic approach to life, which is the basic approach of fallen man, that man is independent and God really doesn't exist or interact with human history. And so one of the things that always happens is you, in liberal scholarship is they tend to late date all the books of the Bible. So instead of the... Pentateuch being written in 1440 B.C., they move it up to about 1200, because obviously, if it's written in 1400, then there would be predictive prophecy there. My goodness, that would suggest that there actually is a God, so we can't have that. And there would be other things as well that would indicate divine authorship, so we can't have that, so let's move the date up to about 1200 B.C., and that's what they do. One of the interesting things is that, that Moses uh, wrote this in a particular form, which we'll get to in a minute, that was unique to his time in history, unique to the 15th century B.C. And we'll see that uh, in, in a little detail in a minute. So Moses is on the plains of Moab with the Israelite army po- poised and ready to invade the land that God has given them. That is why he is writing the Pentateuch. It is to explain to the nation why God chose them, why God chose Israel. It explains their national purpose and destiny, that God has a special plan and purpose for Israel. They were called specifically by God through Abraham into existence to be God's firstborn and to serve as a priest nation to all the nations. So these initial books will explain how the nation came into existence. That's why... When you look at Genesis 1, we look at it from a Gentile perspective and we want to know much more about the events between Genesis 1 and Genesis 11, but that is not Moses' purpose. If you take a look, just kind of step back and look at Moses writing Genesis, you have 50 chapters. The first 11 chapters, which is about one-fifth of this book, only I mean, covers about 2,000 years, and then it begins to slow down, doesn't it? You cover 2,000 years in 11 chapters, and then the remaining chapters cover four people. So you have all of Genesis involves four events and four people. The four events are creation, fall, flood, and Babel. That's the four events. The four people are Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. So Genesis 1-11 through 11 covers those first four events. But the next 39 chapters cover four people, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. So you see it slowing down and you see that the focus, that if you look at Genesis, what Moses has in mind is for you to pay attention to what God is doing in these four men. And that sets the stage for what will happen in uh, the Exodus. And then you come to Exodus 1 and things slow down a little more and you focus on Moses but you're still covering vast amounts of time in just a few chapters. And then you come to Exodus 19.1 when the nation comes to Sinai and God gives the law and the brakes come on. It just comes to a 
screaming halt in terms of its temporal movement, and everybody stops at Sinai from from Exodus 19:2 to the end of Exodus 40. It covers a one-year period. Now, if you were just stopping and looking and thinking about this, what is the main point in Genesis and Exodus? What does God really want the nation to be paying attention to? What happens between Exodus 19 and Exodus 40? That's where all the, the focus is. Everything just comes to, comes to a screaming halt. says, look at this. And we'll see why in a minute. But you have to understand that when you read the Pentateuch, read it like a Jew prepared to go into the land, wanting to know why are we doing this? Why did God give us the land? Why did God give us the Mosaic Covenant? What is God's plan of salvation? And how do, do we fit into this? What is all of this about? That's what this is written to explain. It's not written to answer all of our questions about were there dinosaurs on the earth with man? What about this? And what about that? And all the different questions that we have. And we have a lot. But um, it's written to explain a theological purpose. God's plan and purpose in history specifically through Israel. Now when Moses structures the Pentateuch, he does it in a special way. He uses a secular treaty form, a secular contract form, let's say. Remember, the Old Testament is built around covenants. The covenant means a contract from the Hebrew word berit, which means covenant contract between two parties. Now, it was typical in the ancient world, as it is today, that when you sit down and make a legal contract, that there are certain things that are going to go into that document. And that at different times in history, there were different forms that were used. So if you look at the literary structure of a contract, for example, if you were in real estate and uh, a thousand years from now or a hundred years from now and somebody came up with a found a, a real estate contract and it didn't have a date on it and you looked at it according to the provisions and the way it was structured and the way it was written and the kinds of things that had to be in there, you, if you were a student of the laws of Connecticut at this particular time, you could determine whether that contract pertained to the early 70s, late 70s, early 80s, late 80s, early 90s, or late 90s, simply by the way it is structured. The same thing is true about the uh, Old Testament, and especially the Pentateuch. We can look at the Pentateuch in the early uh, 1960s. A, uh, an Old Testament scholar by the name of Meredith Klein published a book called The Treaty of the Great King, in which he demonstrated that the entire Pentateuch, as well as sections within the Pentateuch, which just shows how, how incredible the organization is, that this could not have been haphazardly written by two or three different authors and then thrown together. It shows it, ha- it has deep internal thematic structure that is repetitive. The entire Pentateuch is laid out on the, on the pattern of a what's called a suzerain vassal treaty form. Not only that, but Deuteronomy, which is a subsection, is according to the suzerain vassal treaty form. And there are other sections within the Pentateuch that are also according to this same form. So that indicates, because of its just, just because of its literary structure, that it was written in the uh, middle 2nd millennium B.C., around 1400-1500 B.C. Now Moses, remember, is uh, a brilliant individual. Moses was raised where? In the court of Egypt. He was raised as the prince of Egypt, which means he had... Uh, what would be equivalent to an Oxford or Cambridge education today. He was drilled in the sciences at that time, which would include astronomy, uh, geometry, mathematics, law, uh, military arts. 
he would have been very familiar with the things that were going on in neighboring cultures. And the dominant uh, treaty form that was used during this time was called a suzerain vassal treaty form. Now, I know that terminology is uh, not something you use all the time. Think back when you studied feudalism and you were sleeping through feudalism in uh, your uh, world history classes in high school or college. A suzerain is a lord, the overlord, the great king. A vassal is like what we would call a client state. The, great, the best analogy we would have is the relationship of the satellite countries to the Soviet Union during the Cold War. Poland, Czechoslovakia, Hungary, these were client nations. They were indeed vassal states to the Soviet Empire. A vassal is a, uh, someone, a country that has been, is under the uh, domination and hegemony of a higher, greater empire. And it's under their control. And so there would be these contracts or covenants or treaties that the two countries would enter into and the great country uh, would, would bring the lesser king in and say, okay, we're going to keep you on the throne and to allow you to continue to rule and here's the deal. These are the guidelines. This is, these are the regulations. I would always start off with a historical prologue defining the past relations between the two countries and how the great king had blessed and prospered and benefited the lesser power, and then it would define the legal relationships within the, within the uh, present structure, and then it would go on and list uh, the things that could happen if you break the contract, uh, this is what will happen to you. If you uh, abide by the contract, then this is, these are the good things that will come to you. These are the benefits that will come to you. And you can already see how this relates to the Mosaic Law. So we see that the Pentateuch is laid out with these basic patterns. There's a historical introduction to the covenant in Genesis 1-1 through Exodus 19-2. And all of that covers the past relations between God and Israel. Genesis 1-11 through is a uh, historical prologue that explains why God has to call out Abraham specifically uh, and, and create a new nation. Then in, from Exodus 19.3 through Numbers 10.10, 10, the, there are the covenant stipulations proper, the main rules and regulations of the covenant that God is enter, entering into between himself and the nation Israel. And then the historical conclusion to the covenant is from Numbers 10.11 through Deuteronomy 34.12. And Deuteronomy itself is laid out according to this same pattern, this same program. We know of this because archaeologists at the early, earlier part of this century discovered some of these contracts in a library from, uh, uh, in a Hittite library. And one example we have comes from a king, a Hittite king, King Mursahilis, and he had a vassal king, Depiteshub, who was an ailing, aging king down in what we would call, um, he was an Amorite in the country of Amuru, and that gives us a perfect pattern to see how these things uh, relate. In that particular document, we have a historical prologue that surveys the past relationships between Hatti, the Hittites, and the Amorites, Amuru, and it reviews the various acts of blessing and kindness between the two countries and includes the reasons why uh, Mursahilis chose Dupi Teshub and why he put him on the throne and allowed him to be king despite his aging and ailing condition. So we see this same thing when we come to Genesis uh, 1, 1 through Exodus 19. Remember, there were no um, 
the reason these are broken up into books is because of the, the size of the scrolls. They can only get so much information on one scroll, so they're broken where they are because of the uh, size of the scrolls and the length of the paper. It's not that Moses said, okay, I'm going to write five books. The first book is going to have this outline. The second book is going to have this outline. The third book is going to have this outline. He wrote one lengthy document, and it's, we break it down that way, and it's been broken down that way because of the way it's organized according to the, to the scrolls. So from all of this, what we see, what we learn from this is that uh, what the Bible claims to be true, that this is a document related to this time period, is evident or, or is substantiated by its very form. Now, this suzerain vassal treaty form is going to is crucial to understand all the covenants of the Old Testament. That's why I'm just introducing it to you uh, this morning, and we'll come back and learn some more things about this. The suzerain is the great king, the great lord. Some people now try to call it the sovereign vassal treaty form, but the technical term, and I think you should learn what the technical terminology is, the technical term is that this is the suzerain vassal treaty form or the suzerain vassal covenant. Now, when we look at all of this and examine it, what we see is that the key verse is in Exodus 19, 4, and 6. Exodus 19, verses 4 through 6. There we read God saying to Moses, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to Myself. Now then, if you will indeed obey My voice and keep My covenant. Notice the emphasis on stipulations here, that you shall be my own possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine. And here's the key verse, the focal point. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Now, what is the purpose of a priest? A priest is an intercessor and mediator between people and God. The prophet gave was the one who spoke for God to the people, but the priest is the one who came as the intercessor and the representative of the people to God. So Israel is, as a nation is put in the position of serving as a priest nation between God and the rest of humanity. This is a profound. This is why Israel is, has such a central role in all of human history. So the first thing we see here is that Israel is not simply the purpose of the Old Testament. It's not The focal point here is not just in the redemption of Israel. Israel is chosen as a means to achieving a higher purpose. And that purpose is the salvation of the nations. So Israel is chosen as a means to an end. They are the priest nation through whom God will come and, and work and reveal His Word for all the nations and in fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant that all the nations will be blessed in them. So the first thing that we note from this passage is that Israel is not the purpose of the Old Testament, but the means to achieving the broader purpose of God, which is the salvation of all the people. The second thing we see is that Israel was to serve as the mediator between God and all of the peoples of the earth. They are in a national position. And if you examine a map of the ancient world, you see that all the trade routes, all the caravan routes, converged on Israel. If you were going from Egypt to uh, Babylon, you had to go through Israel. If you were going to go from uh, Asia Minor up in Turkey or Rome or Europe or that area, 
and you were headed down to Persia or into the Middle East or down to Egypt, you had to go through Israel. So all these caravan routes converged in Israel, and it was at that point through these truck drivers, basically, that Israel would, would evangelize the caravan drivers, and then they in turn would take the Word of God back to their nation. So that is how Israel was to be a witness and evangelist in the ancient world. Third thing we see is that Israel's role in the plan of God is to serve as a means to the end. They are not the end. Incidentally, it's just a side point and observation here. There are many people who think that the whole purpose of the Bible and the purpose of the Old Testament is to express the salvation of God, that that's why God has this, His salvation. But this same principle applies. Salvation is not the end. Salvation is merely the means to an end. You are saved from something to something. So salvation cannot be the overriding purpose of understanding the Bible. What's the overriding purpose? It is the glory of God. Now, why is that important? For those of you who are a little more advanced and learned a few other things, that one of the major differences between covenant theology and dispensational theology, and we are dispensational in our theology, is that covenant theology teaches that the overall purpose of the Scripture is salvific. It is soteriological. It is related to salvation. But dispensational theology says that there is a broader purpose than salvation. It is the glory of God. And so I'm simply reiterating and emphasizing these themes and points so that you see this, that salvation isn't the end, but the means to the end. And the end is the glory of God. That is why we are saved. We are saved for a purpose to fulfill the role God originally intended for mankind. And then fourth, the final objective is for God to have unbroken fellowship with His creatures, the people of the earth. Now, this leads us to one very important question, and that is, why is the human race then so crucial? Why has God chosen to create mankind? For the Jews, the question was, why has God called us as a nation? Why are we here? Why has God given us this land? Why are we to go in and annihilate all of these people? Why is God using us in this way? But beyond that question is the question, why is the human race so so important and so crucial and why does God emphasize mankind as the central part of all of creation? And here we see that the original vassal, the original vassal in God's contract is God is the sovereign, the suzerain. Adam, Adam, was created as the original vassal and he was created in perfect environment. So we'll see as we look at this that there are important ramifications for understanding this. This whole concept of the suzerain vassal treaty is going to drive us right into being able to understand why Genesis 1 and 2 is so crucial. And if you do not take them literally, if they did not happen the way they are written and with a literal interpretation, then it destroys the significance of everything God says to Israel and in turn destroys everything that's in the New Testament. You cannot separate history from doctrine at all. Three things we'll look at. First of all, the creation account of man as the image of God in Genesis 1, 26 and 27. This is a central focal point of the creation narrative in the first part of Genesis. The second thing that we're going to look at this morning is that this creation account 
is a covenant establishing document. There is a contract established that is inherent within the verbiage of Genesis chapter 1 and we see this in its relationship to God's covenant with Noah. So this is the second thing. You're going to see this sentence again, so don't try to scribble it all down too fast. You'll see this again. I'm just giving you the overview here so you'll know where we're going this morning. The first was the creation account of man as the image of God in Genesis 1, 26 and 27. And the second is that this creation account is covenant establishing. And we'll see that in its relationship to uh, the covenant God made with Noah in Genesis 6, 18, where God says to Noah just before the flood, but I will establish my covenant with you. Well, what covenant is God talking about here? Is this a covenant in the future? Or is this a covenant that God has already established with mankind? And what we'll see when we get to this point is that the covenant that God makes with Noah is a repetition of what God says about mankind and mankind's purpose in Genesis 1, uh, 28 and 29 with a few significant differences. So when God says to Noah, I will establish my covenant with you, what he has in mind is I'm going to reestablish with you the covenant I made with Adam back in the Garden of Eden when I first created man. We will continue, despite this horrific global judgment, I will continue the covenant with man to serve as my vassal on planet Earth. The third thing we're going to see is that the context of the creation week emphasizes the creation of mankind as the centerpiece and the purpose of all of God's creative work. It didn't just happen by chance. It is not um, just happenstance that there happen to be bipedal hominoids who are rational creatures on planet Earth. But there is a purpose to everything that God did in those first five days to prepare the earth for the presence of man. Now, what we're seeing in all of this is an overview. I keep coming back to this. I want you to understand this framework. We have the overview of the Old Testament, three parts, the law, five parts, the law, history, major pro- uh, uh, wisdom literature, major prophets, minor prophets. That's the English Bible. So we're focused on the law. First part of the law is this historical prologue from Genesis 1 to Exodus 19. It surrounds four events, fall, flood, uh, uh, creation, fall, flood, Babel, and four people, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. We're focused on the first event, which is creation. Now, if you look at this, we're bringing the telescope or the microscope down. We've gone from the big picture down to Genesis 1 to Exodus 19. Now we're coming down to the next unit, which is Genesis 1 through 11. In Genesis 1 through 11, Moses uses a phrase that he repeats seven times in this section. And this is the phrase that around which all of his material is organized. We first find it in 2.4, where it says, These are the generations of the heaven and the earth. So the formula is, These are the generations of X. And there are seven statements. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth. These are the generations of Adam. These are the generations of Noah. All of these things indicate probably, most scholars believe, conservative scholars believe, that what this reflects is the fact that from the creation of Adam, and probably from the fall, up through Moses, there were records kept, a tremendous amount of records kept. And 
the, in fact, some people argue that the phrase toledot in the Hebrew, these are the generations, could be these are the records of. And so it, it, it would seem that under the ministry of God the Holy Spirit, Moses had historical documents going all the way back to the creation. And under the supervision of God the Holy Spirit, he was picking and choosing the information from those documents and editing them and putting them together into this particular document. So there are seven, uh, seven sections, and you'll see this slide many, many times. The creation narrative in Genesis 1, 1 to 2, 3. The second division is the sins of Adam and his descendants in Genesis 2, 4 to 4, 26. The third division covers human history from Adam to Noah in Genesis 5, 1 to 6, 8, just prior to the flood. Then we have fourth, the record of Noah and the worldwide flood, Genesis 6, 9 through 9, 29. Then the fifth division covers the scattering of the human race, Genesis 10, 1 through 11, 9. Sixth, we see the genealogy, very specific genealogy from Shem, Noah's third son, to Abraham, Genesis 11:10 through 26, which brings our focus down to that significant individual God calls out to start the Jewish race. And in the seventh division is the introduction of Avram and Sarai in Genesis 11:27 to 32. So that's the overall structure. So the reason I bring this in is to help you understand that this is not, as liberal theology says, just sort of a collection that was thrown together by a later editor. That there is a deep internal structure, the literary structure, and I can't even, I'm just scratching the surface of, of this because we're just in a survey type of situation here. I just want to cover the high points. But I, I need to build at the beginning of this because Genesis 1 through 11 is so foundational to the rest of the Bible. Our confidence that this is indeed the Word of God as it claims to be and should be handled and treated in a literal manner. So, having said all of that, we come to the first point this morning, which is that man, or excuse me, that, that man is a, the context of the creation week as emphasizing the creation of mankind as the centerpiece and purpose of all God's creative work. That's the first point. The context of the creation week is emphasizing the creation of mankind as the centerpiece and purpose of all man's creative work. first point we need to remind ourselves of from last time is that man was created as to resolve the angelic conflict. In the document of Genesis, we don't go all the way back into eternity past because that doesn't fit Moses' purpose to write to Israel. He's not putting them within the overall framework of the angelic conflict. He's putting them within the framework of God's purpose for man according to Genesis 1, 26 and 27, which is the centerpiece of this discussion. But we saw last time in our study that man created the original earth in Genesis 1, 1 that this was the center of the throne of God. In Ezekiel 28.13, describing the fall of, of Satan, it says that he was the anointed cherub who was in, the, in Eden with God. That Eden is not the Garden of Eden of Genesis 3, but predates all of that. So we put that together, that this was the original throne of God, that just as an admiral places his flag on a, on a flagship, but he's not the commander, there's still a captain of that particular ship. So God had a throne room on earth and earth was the center of 
Satan's or Lucifer's pre-fall activities. That's why he is still the god of this age, the god of this world, the prince and power of the air. That is why planet Earth is the focal point is because this is the center of the angelic rebellion from the very beginning. Point two, we saw that there was a unified angelic choir that praised God at the creation of the earth in Job 38, 4, and 5. All the sons of God shouted together for joy and they sang praises to God. So there was not yet at that time a division among the angels. Third, there we saw the fall of Satan, of the fall of Lucifer, which is described in Isaiah 14, 12 through 14, and in Ezekiel 28:11 through 19. We saw that the earth, fourth, we saw that the earth was judged. The universe was judged. It says the earth was without form and void. Tohu vabohu indicates judgment. Darkness was on the face of the deep. Those terms darkness and deep, we saw the verses last time, always indicate judgment on the earth, chaos. The universe is judged and placed in darkness. And notice, notice in verse 3, when you start reading God's recreation account, He says He separates the light from the darkness and He called the light good. He didn't call the light and the darkness good. He just called the light good. And over and again, through through Genesis 1, we see this pattern of God creating something and calling it good, but He doesn't call the darkness good. It's only when He brings light in. Remember, darkness is the absence of light. So darkness is there because God has removed His presence, removed light from the universe and brought judgment on the universe. And then there's this restoration which shows the grace of God and the redemption of God throughout human history. So the universe was judged, placed in darkness. And then fifth, there was a trial of the angels. Matthew 25, we know that the lake of fire was created for the devil and his angels. So that was created in time past. Why did the angels not... Uh, end up in the lake of fire. What's the purpose of planet Earth? Well, we draw a theological deduction that Satan must have challenged the judicial decision of God. How can you be just and fair and let me uh, and just consign us to the lake of fire without giving me the opportunity to show what I can do? That I can be like you. I can be God. I can run the planet. I can run the universe. I can be God. Give me that opportunity on the basis of my standards and my, my way of doing things, which is, of course, based on arrogance and pride and self-sufficiency. And so all of human history is, to des- is designed to demonstrate the fallacy of Satan's claim that the only way to success and happiness and meaning and definition is to have a right relationship with God, with our Creator, and to be fulfilling the purpose that God created us for and not running independent of that and thinking that we can come up with the answer on our own and provide meaning for our- to life on our own. It can only come from the Creator. The next thing we see is that the structure of the creation indicates that everything is, is created to provide the perfect environment for the final creation of man. Everything from day one through day five and a half is designed to provide the perfect environment for man. It doesn't just have everything is anthropocentric. Everything is man-centered. Look at the structure. On day one, we see the creation of light, the separation of light from darkness, and temporal separation. God says it was morning and it was evening. On day one, God creates a time clock. Morning and evening. Now, if you're a Jew and you're sitting in the plains of Moab 
getting ready to go into Canaan, and you read that, and you say it was morning and it was evening, day one, what are you thinking? You're thinking in terms of your frame of reference, that it's morning and evening, day one. You're not going to think that, well, that was an age, that was a thousand years, that was ten thousand years. You're thinking this is a 24-hour day, morning and evening then, just like morning and evening now. So God creates a, an environment of light and darkness and temporal separation on day two. God creates the atmosphere. He, he, the earth up until that point is still covered with water. He takes part of that water and He puts it out like a canopy around the earth, much like Venus. We don't know if it was a vapor canopy, if it was ice crystals. Uh, there are several different things that are, have been written by scientists trying to uh, set up models as to how this would impact the earth, but it would have made a very different environment. The earth from, from the restoration to the flood was vastly different from the way it was now. Some physical laws were different. Some laws of, of, of botany, biology were different. For example, we'll see in, the, in Eden, one river flowed out and divided into four. Well, you don't have that on planet Earth today. There's no rivers that diverge. They all converge, but you don't have one river that then splits into four. You might have two or three rivers come together, like the Missouri, the Mississippi, and the Ohio, three rivers that come together and then form one, but you don't have one river split into three. And this is the situation you have uh, before the fall. So there's a unique situation on the Earth. And the third day... Or in day two, you have the atmosphere set up. Day three, you set up the seas and the continents. You, you now have an upper level, a canopy, then the atmosphere and the water on the earth. That's day two. Day three, God divides the seas from the continents, creating the environment of water, the environment of dry land. He creates vege- vegetation. And here we have geographic separation. On the fourth day, He creates the light bearers. Notice the pattern. On day one, He creates light. This is just light as an entity. It is not instantiated in anything. It is just light. It permeates the universe. And then it is encapsulated into light bearers. In Hebrew, on day one, you have the creation of Or. And on day four, the creation of Ma'or. Light bearers. The sun, moon, and stars that fit into the environment of the heavens. So, day 1, 2, and 3 create environments. Day 4, 5, and 6 create what fills the environment. Day 5, you have the creation of the creatures of the air who live in the atmosphere, the upper atmosphere. And then you have the creation of the creatures of the water, the fish and other creatures who live in the water on the earth. So, air creatures and water creatures on day 5 fill the environment of air and water created on day 2. Then day six, you have the creation of land creatures and man who fill the uh, continents uh, which were created on day three. What we learn from this is that God is an orderly God. He is intelligent in His approach and in His work. He is orderly and intelligent in His approach and in His work. It is not haphazard. There is a plan. There is a procedure. He is systematic. Now, that's important. What's the application? If God is systematic, we should be systematic. We're created in the image of God. We shouldn't live life haphazardly. We shouldn't live life randomly. Well, whatever happens, happens. We should have a plan and a purpose and think things out just as God did. God is orderly and organized. Now, I want to cover seven quick observations before we move on. And I can already tell that I'm 
spending too much time in Genesis 1 and 2. I could probably teach on Genesis 1 for about four months before we got out of the chapter. There is just so much that's there and I'm having trouble keeping away from going into too much detail. But I want to deal with seven observations on the first chapter just to give you a little information that will help answer some questions. First of all, these days are 24-hour days. They are not lengthy periods or geologic ages. Now, how do we know that? First of all, on the first day, God creates the time clock. As mentioned already, morning and evening indicate a 24-hour day. The second thing is based on the language used. In the Hebrew, you have the word yom, which is the word for day. Yom is used with an ordinal number, day one. Every time, and there are over 200 times in the Old Testament that yom is used with an ordinal number, every time it is used with an ordinal number, it refers to a literal 24-hour day. No exceptions. So, yom plus an ordinal equals a 24-hour day. The third reason is given in Exodus 28-10 through 10, when God says to the Jews in the, in the commandment related to the Sabbath, He says, For in six days I made the heavens and the earth and all that is in them. You are to work six days and rest on the seventh. Why? Because that's the pattern of the creation. Now, if you're a Jew sitting on the plains of Moab and God says, Work six days and rest seven, what are you thinking? You've got a seven-day work week. You're thinking, I work six, I rest seven. God did it in literal 24-hour days. If God meant something different than that, then He is deceiving the Israelites. Once again, if He's deceiving the Israelites, God's not God through the whole thing out. You have to take a literal creation. Take the Bible at its word or you have fundamental problems throughout the rest of Scripture. Furthermore, in Exodus 28-10, through 10, when God says, I made the heavens and the earth in six days, it's the plural is Yamim. Yamim, the plural, is used over 700 times in the Hebrew Old Testament. Every single time Yamim is used in the plural, it refers to literal 24-hour days. No exception. So there is no linguistic data anywhere to support the idea that Yom used either in the plural or with an ordinal number can mean anything other than a literal 24-hour day. Furthermore, it can't fit the pattern. Look at that chart for a minute. Day one, day two, day three. Day three, you have the creation of vegetation. If day three refers to the Cenozoic Age or the Mesozoic Age or some other age, and you have the creation of plant life, and you have 10,000, 20,000, or 100,000 years go by before there is a sun, well, all that plant life demands photosynthesis for survival. You can't go more than maybe a day or two until it's those plants get sunlight in order to survive. So you can't go... Well, all I'm saying by that is you can't go into these days and try to make them fit the geologic ages because the order of events in the geologic ages is drastically different from the order of events in, in Genesis chapter 1. So seven observations. The first is that there are 24-hour days. The second is that language demarcates barriers and categories. And what do I mean by that? Day one, God creates light and He calls the light day and the darkness He calls night. As you go through Genesis 1, God starts naming things. Now, if, if a child, I'm going to use a quick analogy, if a child's growing up and as a newborn baby, he starts to learn things. 
And he sees this family dog run through the living room, and you point to him and say, Doggy. And he learns what a dog is. And it's one of the most fantastic things is um, that, uh, oh, I can't think of the man's name now. He is Mortimer Adler, who was one of the editors with uh, Encyclopedia Britannica and the great books of the Western world, made the observation that the most incredible intellectual accomplishment you and I will ever make in our life we made before we were five years old. What was that? We learned a language. That's the most incredible thing. Animals do not do that. Despite the fact that you have a couple of uh, apes and monkeys and gorillas who picked up sign language here and there, it's limited. It can only go so far. I'm not saying that animals don't have some sense of communication. When my dog runs to the food bowl and looks at me and barks, there's some form of communication. What we know is that Language is unique to man. Language establishes categories. So when you're teaching your little child and they learn that this is a dog, isn't it incredible that it's not? It just takes maybe a day, and they realize that when they see the spaniel down the street or the German Shepherd, they categorize all of them as dogs, and they learn that cat is not dog. Now, assume evolution is true. Cats evolve into dogs. You go to sleep at night and you wake up the next morning, and now the dog is. Not a dog anymore. Somewhere between a dog and a cat. What does that do to language, to learning, to meaning in the universe? It destroys it. That's the implication here, is that language establishes that there are unbreakable categories in the creation and that becomes a foundation for learning and for knowledge. A lot more I can say about that, but we don't have time. Third, when God says these things were good and then concludes by saying they were very good, it means that it is in accord with God's plan. This indicates the expression of divine purpose. It's the Hebrew word tov, and it indicates purpose, not moral quality. When God says the light was good, it doesn't mean it was moral. Light doesn't have qualities of morality or immorality. When God looks at the animals and says they're good, they're not moral or immoral. They are what He intended them to be. So tov means that... Uh, this is exactly what God intended, an expression of divine purpose. Now, the reason that's important is because there are some that will come along and say at the end when God said everything was very good, which is the culmination of His plan that He finished, what they will say is that means that everything was perfect, there was no sin in the universe yet, and so that Lucifer had not fallen. Now, that's a major problem at that point, and, and it's based upon uh, misrepresentation of the text. I know Hebrew scholars will argue that, but the Hebrew professors that I had at Dallas argued from a better position. And I think they're right. Fourth, the terminology after their kind substantiates categories again. Categories are very important. God starts off with categories. He creates the animals according to categories. And then he has Adam name them. He's going to uh, initiate language, bring the animals to Adam, and then Adam is going to carry out the process and he's going to continue the process of naming. That's what human history is all about. God initiates, gives man the framework of knowledge, and then man operating within that framework of divine knowledge then builds. It is designed for man to utilize what God has created, not just to live in harmony with what God has created. After their kind indicates that this is not the same as a species. The kind in Scripture is broader than species, smaller than genus. It indicates that there's no cross-fertilization between the kinds. 
So when you take, what is it, a horse and a, and a donkey and you can have a mule, the mule is sterile and can't reproduce. So even though you may have uh, uh, some kind of creature that's, that's developed between two species, it depends on whether it's reproducible. So the kinds are rigid categories. You would have a dog kind or a cat kind that would then, uh, uh, the DNA was built with such, God created the DNA with all of this uh, complexity so that it could be uh, diverse, diversify through history. So God's plan was such that it included all of these options within it and it had the flexibility within the DNA code to handle what would happen from the flood. And this is remarkable to look at this, all that's involved in that. There's more information, there's more information in, there's about 10 gigabytes of data in one female ova. And to think about that, that if you change one, you change everything. It may not even function after that. And to think that all of that can come about by chance is, is absurd. After their kind is used three times on the third day in relation to plants, three times, that's repetitive. God wants to make sure you get the point that the plants reproduce after their kind. They don't become some other kind of plant. It's used two times on the fifth day in relationship to sea creatures and birds. The Hebrew phrase here is lamina, which means kind or category. It's used again. It's important to note this. It's used only three times in three passages in Scripture. Lamina is used in Genesis 6.20 in the instructions God gives Noah on taking animals on the ark. That these categories are the same. Of the birds after their kind and of the animals after their kind, of every creeping thing of the ground after its kind. So God is preserving the breakdown through the flood. Then again, the word is used in Leviticus 11, 15, 16, 19, and 22 in defining clean and unclean animals. So this term is a very precise term that indicates a, a rigid barriers between animals. If there's fluidity beyond the kind category, then what would that do to the demarcation of clean and unclean animals in either Genesis 6 and 7 or in Leviticus 11. It would render those things somewhat meaningless. Fifth observation. Shabbat. After six days of creation, God rested on the seventh day. Did God rest because He was tired? No. God, God is omnipotent. God never grows weary or tired. God rested to establish a pattern for man. And that pattern we later learn through the Mosaic Law and in Hebrews is the pattern of resting and trusting in God. Sabbath is created for man. God needs no rest. It's an emphasis. In, whenever you read about the Sabbath, the emphasis is always on faith, rest, drill. It's always on trusting God, man relaxing in the provision of God. God rested because God had supplied everything that mankind needed. There was nothing left out. Everything was complete and perfect. Six, what we see in the passage is indications of the Trinity. God says, let us make man. The word for God is Elohim, which is a plural. And what you'll find today in Hebrew scholarship, they always talk, well, it's just a plural of majesty, which means that when you really want to emphasize something as great, you use a plural of majesty. It doesn't mean there's plurality. But what you have is God saying, God, Elohim, plural, saying, let us. Well, what is us? Us is the first person plural pronoun. That's not a plural of majesty. That indicates plurality in the Godhead. 
So from the very beginning, you see indications of the Trinity, that God is not a, it's not a singular monotheism, but a plural monotheism, Trinitarian monotheism. Seventh observation is that God exists. He is self-consistent, orderly, purposeful, and comprehensible. That's what we see in, this, in Genesis 1. God is self-consistent. He's not dependent on His creation. He is distinct from all creation. He is orderly. He has planning. He has gives it thought. He has purposeful. There is reason to what God does. Extending to the most minute detail. And it is, because of language, it is comprehensible. Language is the tool of thought. It is comprehensible. Therefore, implication, God's revelation is also self-consistent, orderly, purposeful, and comprehensible. That means the Word of God is given not to befuddle you, not so you go home and say, well, I really wish I knew the key to understanding that, but God's Word is given to be comprehended. It's understandable. It is clear. You don't have to have some mystical key of knowledge in order to unlock the meaning of Scripture. That's why we emphasize that the interpretation of Scripture is based on a literal, plain understanding of the text. You have to understand the time in which it was written. We did some isagogics this morning, understanding the Scriptures in vast treaty form. But it's understandable. You may need to learn some historical background to, re- to interpret it correctly, but it is designed to be understood, not to be fuddled. Now, that leads us to the second point that I wanted to cover this morning, which is that this account is covenant establishing. The account, the creation account is, must be understood as covenant establishing, and this is related to God's statement to Noah. And I think we have just enough time to cover this point, and then we'll need to wrap up this morning. Genesis 6.18. God said to Noah, I will establish my covenant. I, I said earlier, does this mean God's going to establish a new covenant in the future? Or it could mean God is going to reestablish a covenant that is already in existence. Now, I take it that this means that it's already in existence because of the parallels that we will see between Genesis 9 and Genesis 1, 26 through 28. I will establish my covenant with you and you shall enter the ark. Okay. Genesis 9, 1. Let's look at this outline of the covenant with Noah. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Now, God says the same thing to Adam. We're, going to, we're working backward here. We're going to work from Genesis 9 back to Genesis 2 because the word covenant isn't used in Genesis 1 or 2. The terminology is. That's what the argument is. That the reason we're saying that God makes a covenant with Adam from the instant of creation, that that whole passage is covenantal, is because the terminology is identical to the terminology in Genesis 9. If Genesis 9 is covenant, in Genesis 1, 26-28 has to be covenant. God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Now, what did that mean to Noah? It meant go out and procreate, fill the earth. It meant the same thing to Adam. Genesis 9, 2. This, pay attention to. This is where there is a difference. In Genesis 1, we'll see that Adam was to rule over the birds of the air, the fish of the sea, and the beasts of the field. But now there's a change. What happened in between was the fall. And the fear of you, and the terror of you, that didn't characterize the, fall, the pre-fall environment. But now the fear of you and the terror of you shall be on every beast of the earth and on every bird of the sky with everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea into your hand they are given. 
And now they become part of the food chain. You see, you'll always run into somebody who's a vegetarian and they're going to think that that's just the ideal way. But because of what has happened in terms of human body construction and a number of other things at the flood, because it changed the environment, man prior to the flood was vegetarian, but after the flood, he must eat meat. There are nutrients and vitamins that you must get from meat and protein alone. And so there is a change here and it goes back to the flood. Genesis 9.3, Every moving thing that is alive shall be food for you. I give all to you as I gave the green plant. And as for you, be fruitful and multiply. Populate the earth abundantly and multiply in it. Now behold, I myself do establish my covenant with you and with your descendants after you. Now let's go to Genesis 1. Genesis 1.26-29. 1, then God said, Let us, the Trinity, make man in our image according to our likeness and let them what? Look at what they're to do. Here they rule in Genesis 9, their spirit. Let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. And God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply See the similarity? Same terminology. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Then God said, Behold, I have given you every plant-yielding seed that is on the surface of the earth and every tree which has fruit. See, that was referred to in Genesis 9. Genesis 9 goes back and says, Just as I gave you the plant, now I give you the animal. So there's a modification in Genesis 9 of the original creation covenant. But if Genesis 9 is a covenant, Genesis 1, 28 to 29 is also a covenant. It is the Edenic covenant. And Genesis 1, 30, to every beast of the earth, to every bird of the sky, and to everything that moves on the earth with his life, I have given every green plant for food. Which means that all the animal life prior to the fall was uh, herbivorous, ramnivorous. They were not carnivores. That is a result of the flood. And that leads to the third thing I wanted to get to this morning, which is the focal point of all of this, and that is the creation of man as the image of God. But we have run out of time, so we'll have to start there next time, and we'll try to get the creation of man in Genesis here, in Genesis 2, and then on into the fall next time. I want to move through this a little more rapidly, but we have to lay the foundation. What we're looking at here is, go back to Suzerain Vassal Treaty form. I want to tie this tie a knot around this for you before you leave. The Suzerain Vassal Treaty, you have the great king who establishes the vassal. The vassal is to be his representative. That's what image and likeness relates to functionally. We are to represent God on the earth. That was man's original pre-fall condition. But the image is more than just a function. It has to do with who we are immaterially. That image is marred by the fall of Jesus, by the fall, and then it is restored through regeneration and sanctification where we are being renewed according to what? The image of Christ. So what all this is leading to is just as God created Adam in the garden to be his representative, his vice regent to rule the earth. So that is the function that we are being restored to as believers in our role today is that we are to be the image of Jesus Christ, representatives of Jesus Christ to the earth because we are being restored to that original 
image. It doesn't happen until glorification, but it begins, the restoration process begins because of God's grace at salvation. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed, Father, we do thank You for what we have learned today and the way it increases our confidence in the veracity of Your Word. And we see all of the complexity of Your creation and how everything is, is interrelated and is controlled by Your omnipotence and Your power. Father, we also see Your grace in restoration, restoring the planet after the satanic fall and judgment. And Your grace extends to the cross where all sins are paid for by Jesus Christ. Father, we pray that if there's anyone here uncertain of their eternal destiny, that now would be the opportunity for them to make a decision about where they spend eternity. Salvation is by faith alone in Christ alone. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. You don't have to join a church. You don't have to reform your life. You don't have to make a deal with God or you don't have to give any money. All you have to do is accept the free gift of salvation in Jesus Christ. Now, Father, we pray that you would help us to meditate on these things, that the Holy Spirit would bring them back to our mind during the week, that we might think them through and understand them, that our our understanding of the world around us might be uh, changed and transformed according to the truth. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.